Hi, this is Wayne Zell, and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, your video cast featuring special content and special guests designed to help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. Blueprint for Wealth is brought to you by Zell Law, a tax, estate planning, and business planning law firm located in Reston, Virginia, serving clients all across the United States. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at zelllaw.com. Today's educational moment is featuring the 10 rules of stock options. And let's get started. The 10 things you need to know about your stock options are the following items. Number one, set goals. What do you want to do with the proceeds once you exercise your stock options and sell the stock and get money in your pocket? It's a financial planning exercise that you have to go to. Are you going to use the proceeds for your base savings, for your rainy day fund, for uh, planning for the near future? Are you going to use them for your legal support obligations? Or are you going to do something special like add on to your home or buy a new one, build a vacation home, or even take a vacation? Do the planning up front, set your goals, and then decide how much of your stock options you should exercise and when. It helps you focus on your specific use of the proceeds from the stock in regards to your other financial planning obligations, income, and savings. Number two, develop a plan. How do you handle your stock options over time? Well, this involves understanding the tax issues relating to stock options, which we'll cover in a second. And also, if you exercise today, and you lock in your, 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 your stock appreciation today, have you lost out on gains in the future by exercising now? Develop, developing a good plan helps you focus on your specific use of the stock in relation to your other income and savings, just as I mentioned a second ago. Exercise and sell just enough to meet your goals. There are really two approaches that you could adopt. One is stagger the exercises of the stock options and sales over a period of years to spread out the income tax obligation or hold the options until the last possible moment when you must exercise them in order to best maximize your gains. Number three, you really need to understand how to value your stock options. You need to account for the exercise price, the strike price that you have to pay when you exercise the option. It might be a very low price or it might be very close to what the fair market value of the stock is today. So you have to account for the exercise price and you have to account for the taxes that you're going to pay. Here's an example. Let's say you own a thousand options to purchase a thousand shares that are worth a hundred dollars a share today in the public market. That means that you would have something of value equal to about $100,000, right? But you have an exercise price to pay for the, the stock. And if the exercise price is $50 a share, then you're really only entitled to get the excess, $100,000 minus $50,000 or $50,000. And you've got to pay taxes at a 40% or more rate on the exercise and sale of the stock option. Note that if you have a non-qualified stock option, you automatically are going to have with tax withholding 
of at least 25% taken out of the proceeds. Number four, you could wait to exercise. If the company value is increasing, hold on to the option until you can afford to exercise. Because if you exercise now, remember, you may have to pay the exercise price and the income taxes to the federal government, depending on the kind of option you have. If you have an incentive stock option, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, the alternative minimum tax may kick in on the exercise of your option. If you have a non-qualified stock option, then you're going to be subject to regular income tax on the exercise of your option for the difference between the fair market value on the date of exercise and your exercise price. Typically, most stock option plans give you 10 years from the date of grant to exercise your options. But if you exercise and hold the option, exercise the option and hold the shares and hold for at least a year, you can get long-term capital gains treatment on the resale of the stock. That's a 20% difference in income tax rates between long-term capital gains rates and ordinary income rates, at least under current law. Number five, when you need to ignore rule number four, don't wait too long if it doesn't meet your goals. Also, if, you, if all of your net worth is tied up in your stock options, you may need to diversify your holdings to reduce your risk. If, say, 25% or more of your net worth is concentrated in your stock options, and you have the ability to exercise and sell them, then you may want to do so, again, to diversify your portfolio, diversify your holdings, reduce your risk. But you can't just do it at any time if you're involved in a public company because you may be subject to restrictions on trading that apply to insider trading. If you have inside information relating to the company, you may be restricted from selling the shares while you possess that inside information and the public does not. Number six, what happens if you leave the company? Well, make sure you read your stock option plan and your award agreement carefully. Know your rights if you're fired with or without cause or you quit, you voluntarily resign from employment. Usually you'll have between 90 and maybe as long as 180 days to exercise your option. If there's a death of the option holder, they may have as long as 12 months to exercise the option. And disability has its own rules under your plan, under the award agreement. What if you go to work for a competitor? Well, if you go to work for a competitor, many stock option plans may say that you automatically lose the right to exercise your option. They disappear with no benefit to you whatsoever. The bottom line is make sure your family is aware that you have these stock options where the agreement is and where the plan is so that they can take action if something uh, unfortunate happens to you. Number six, learn about the alternative minimum tax if you own an incentive stock option. An incentive stock option is a special kind of option that's issued by publicly traded and some privately held companies that get pref preferable tax treatment. When you exercise an incentive stock option, you do not have to pay regular income tax on the exercise. Unlike a non-qualified stock option where you do have to pay regular income tax 
on the exercise equal to the difference between the fair market value on the date of exercise and the strike price or the exercise price. In an ISO, you may have alternative minimum taxable income. It's treated as a tax preference item on the exercise of the ISO. Even though it's not subject to regular income tax, it's a trap for the unwary. And if you exercise your ISO, you may owe alternative minimum tax if it kicks you into that realm. The spread between the fair market value and the, a and the exercise price is known as an AMT preference item, and it could subject you to tax at rates up to 28%, meaning that a paper gain could be taxed, so be careful. Number eight, focus on vesting rules and dividends. If the options allow you to immediately exercise them, even though you're not vested, meaning that you have to work for some period of time or you have to hit some performance targets to earn the option, you could exercise them today and lock in the low exercise price, particularly if the company is increasing in value. And then you would be required in order to lock in that lower basis for the shares that you were exercising. Uh, you'd have to file an 83B election. That's referring to code section 83B of the Internal Revenue Code. It has to be filed within 30 days of receiving the stock option grant. If it's not, it's not a valid election, and there's really no way out from making a, a late election for a section 83B election. But it locks in your tax basis and your holding period so that when you vest later on, you're not subject to tax again, and when you sell the shares, you can get long-term capital gains rates if you held the shares for at least a year and you're vested. You can exercise and hold the shares if the company pays dividends. Again, that's another reason to exercise early because you may be entitled to receive dividends even though you're not vested in the shares. Take a look at your plan and your option agreement. And last, get good advice from your advisors. Find out how often the advisor deals with stock options before you entrust this valuable asset to them to help you make your financial planning and tax planning decisions and get references from clients. If you want to know more about stock options, visit us on the web at zellaw.com or give us a call at 571-203-9355. 571 Z-E-L-L, -L, and we'll be happy to schedule an appointment with you to talk to you about your specific issues. I'm Wayne Zell, and thank you for joining us for Blueprint for Wealth. Stay tuned for our special guest. Welcome back to Blueprint for Wealth. I'm Wayne Zell, and you're listening to a, our special guest segment with Ben Edson. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wayne. Ben started up a company called VARQ. Am I saying that correctly? Yep. VARQ like barbecue. VARQ Var like barbecue. And VARQ is a government contractor and they're located in the DC metro area. But we're going to, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, tell us, how did you get to starting that business? Where did you come from? Where, what's your background? What, uh, what was the uh, the impetus? Yeah, well, it's um, so it seems like a lifetime ago since the company was started in 2003 with just myself. 
Um, I had been working with uh, Symantec Professional Services uh, for about three years, and like everybody, I, I wanted to grow in career. And so I posted my resume on monster.com, and uh, as is the case with a lot of GovCon, uh, someone found my resume and said, hey, we'd like to use it in a bid. I'm like, okay, I didn't know what they were talking about, and sure enough, they won, right? So I landed at the U.S. Senate um, as the contract. It was just me as a solution architect, and um, from there, six months in, I, I kind of identified that the company I'd that had brought me in was just a staffing firm. They weren't, right. their depth wasn't in cyber. I had come from Symantec where I'd been traveling the country doing technical installations for Coca-Cola, Aetna, Bank of Mexico. And uh, here I'm landing with a Centria staffing company. So I formed RQ and um, um, subcontracted to a large vendor at the time and that's how it got started. Um, cool. But before then, I was, three before yeah. then I grew up kind of uniquely. I was born in Italy, grew up largely in Argentina, so I came to the states somewhat like an, an immigrant. I was 18 years old when I landed in Miami with 20 bucks in my pocket and uh, clothes that fell out of my suitcase as we were coming off a conveyor belt because my brother and I had <laughs> stuffed the only suitcase we had with duct tape and. And uh, so it's one of those stories of welcome to America and make the best of it. Um, my parents were missionaries. I have 14 other siblings. So uh, you could imagine we, we all had to make our own way in some form or another. What number are you? I'm number two. Wow. Two of 14. Well, today we're going to try to Take, we have three takeaways that we want to leave our audience with, and you're going to help us fill in the gaps on this. One is, how do you build a business from scratch like VARQ and make it so successful? And two, what are the biggest challenges that you face? So you're going to tell us a little bit about that. And then number three, some advice for our young entrepreneurs out there who are listening to the uh, video cast. Um, you know, that background is fascinating. Did you all speak English as a family? So in Europe, um, as a kid, I, we were in France, and amongst ourselves, we spoke French. And then to the parents, we spoke in English, because my parents were American. In Argentina, we spoke okay. English. Um, so we always spoke the English language. Um, we speak fluent Spanish today. I speak fluent Spanish today. I've forgotten all my French. <laughs> huh? 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 It won't be that hard to learn. I'll bet you if you spend some time over there, you'll be able to get it back. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about VARQ. I mean, you, I, I get how you, you know, the staffing deal didn't work out. You started your own business. It's hard to build a successful business from scratch. If you had to tell us, what are the keys to the success that you've uh, been able to generate? So a couple of the, so today we're about 300 uh, employees and we've won some, some big contracts. We've outgrown in the GovCon what's considered a small business, and we've had our portfolio of business uh, turned over um, pretty much one year to the next, right? So in 2020, we were 80% small business still with the book of business. Uh, today, we're 80% unrestricted, which is for large businesses. So our competition is wow. only large businesses. Um, but in starting off, um, I, I think, 
I, I formed VARQ when I was 28. Um, and before then, I had a business, a little bit of business background. I, I did budgets for some of our missionary centers. I did a lot of buying and selling on eBay. Um, I started a real estate company to, to try to build a house. So always kind of figuring out where the angle is to actually make money, how to make money. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. it's, it's important to figure out how to be profitable, right? Because that reduces a lot of stress. VARQ was always profitable. We always figured out how to um, find good people at a cost and then increase that cost in what we sold so you could create margin, right? At 28 right. years old, there's not a lot of connections that you have. I definitely didn't have any in the GovCon industry. So you're kind of learning as you go. Um, and But at the core, I was an engineer, right? Engineers are very wealth. Uh, there's a lot of demand in high tech, in any tech. Cybersecurity, there's a lot of demand. So I was billable and working all the time. And then you have to figure out how to maximize yourself through others. And at some point, right. um, that is then the hardest next step. How do you manage people? How do you recruit people? How do you convince them that they should work with you or for you? How, how do you um, maintain dependability so that they're, you're always paying your bills? They, treat, they trust you to look after them just as much. Once you have that foundation, then it's scale. The scale is tough. One of the things in commercial with Symantec, they were always doing seven day projects to 12 day projects to 14. And there's this thing called utilization where sometimes you were working, sometimes you weren't. And I, half the time they were always saying that they were unprofitable because utilization was a challenge. The beauty of GovCon right. is you, it's tough, but you win these one-year contracts, five-year contracts, so it creates a lot of stability. It might be tough to win them, but once you do, it creates a foundation that then you could build on that is not dependent on utilization. So once you have those foundations, then you have a very a stable business that then you could grow off of. Um, so I, 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 would cons I would say stay away from little, little endeavors that keep you um, turning your wheels and try to go after something that is stable and then from that stability, that'll give you time to figure out how to grow. Uh, something uh, triggered in my mind as you were talking, I was thinking you came into this business really not having any connections in the government or any experience with government contracting except for the initial staffing job, I guess you worked on with the US Senate. Um, how did you build those connections? How did you build the, you know, do the business development to grow the business to, to where it is today? So I had spent five years at the Senate before I at trying to get one person, two people, and I was billing also myself at full time. And it was very, very difficult. Um, I'd never seen what a bid was looked like, what a proposal looked like. I had no idea that this world had small business set-asides. So once I, but I had a lot of passion, right, for changing changing and improving the, the area that I was in. Um, that passion ultimately led me to 
to propose a concept for cybersecurity consolidated services that earn the respect of the CIO, earn the respect of managers, earn the respect of other vendors that were inside of the Senate. Um, and when we competed for what became a, a contract and lost, <laughs> so we actually, out of that concept, I teamed with a big company, Lockheed Martin. Um, they were not selected. The Senate chose a, a cheaper solution vendor. And, but that experience allowed me to then create freedom of mobility, right? And then from there, I connected with Lockheed. I connected with General Dynamics. I connected with other very, very large vendors that uh, saw the entrepreneurial spirit that I had, and they gave me an option uh, or an opportunity to then staff some of their programs. Um, and the rest is just learning, right? How do you create a non-disclosure agreement? How do you create a teaming agreement? How do you create an employment agreement. I honestly just went to Office Depot uh, at the time and took down forms and we kept those forms for 10 years until finally lawyers told us to tighten them up a little bit. And <laughs> so when you don't know much, uh, you, do, you, 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 you do what you can with what you have. Um, the learning aspect is invaluable uh, because as we've gone after bigger programs, you know, working directly with the government, then there's a whole regulatory uh, layer that gets put on top. So you have to surround yourself with good folks. Um, we, VARQ was never built through deep connected relationships. We took the approach of maximum competition, right? So um, an, an, an opportunity would come out. We thought we were good at technically at solutioning and delivering. We would go after it, even though we didn't have all the best connections. Um, that also meant we failed a lot because <laughs> it wasn't sure. for us I mean, or they had someone else, but we learned a lot. But you had the competence. And, and it gave you had us the, the, the capability. Yes. Yeah. Um, let me ask you a question. I mean, one of the things that I noticed also it, you know, with VARQ is what you just mentioned was that you went from 80% small business to 80% free, you know, full and open, which for government contractors is probably the biggest challenge transitioning from small business. How did you do it so quickly in one year? So I, I wish we had a super magical formula. Um, we just had 70% of our work recompeted in 2019. Um, we had won some significant contracts in 2014. And uh, those contracts, they all kind of came to a cycle in 2019, which forced 70% of our work to be recompeted. Um, okay. We had been competing for for work all along, right? Because we, we were never, VARQ was never an 8A. We never knew, we never got sole sources. We always competed for our work. So we knew how to put in a lot of proposals. And one of the key things that we had done over the years is uh, we were very successful on these IDIQs or GWACs, the big umbrella contracts that the government puts out. And that of those umbrella right. contracts, then they issue task orders. So we had um, a fairly robust suite of IDIQs. And um, 
And every year we've won one or two significant contracts since that 2019. Um, and that allowed us to, we recaptured some of our work. So in 2019, we had 70% of our work recompeted. 2020, we landed re winning a percentage of that work. And then we also won new work. And in addition, in 2020, I actually made an acquisition, right? Um, so we, um, right out of COVID, um, in June, we closed on a company called Rivet Logic. They provide digital experience, and uh, that replenished also some of the uh, business that we had lost from, from a shrinking uh, year um, in our own prime work. So the combination allowed us to make that flip both organically and inorganically and recapturing some of some of that work that we had. So it was it was a very so tough what, year. So what I'm hearing, what I'm yeah, it was tough. But what I'm hearing is you used your competence in the technical areas and combined that with your uh, proposal process and really understanding how to go after the work uh, that was enabled you to succeed in something that most people do not, which is you know that's that's wonderful, wonderful. Let me ask you another question. Um, Getting to the second point, if you had to tell us about the biggest challenge that you've faced since starting VARQ, what would that be? The, the biggest challenge is people, right? So um, we're a services company. We're not a product company. Yes. In a product company, right. the, the beauty is you have a core of engineers that love what they do. They see the vision. And then you get an ecosystem of salespeople that then go sell that singular idea um, as many times over as you can. In a services company, every person is unique and they bring strengths and weaknesses and you can't just cookie cutter an engineer to the next engineer or cloud engineer or cyber, they're all different, right? So in the people business, um, the biggest challenge is usually uh, attracting people that want to stay. The second is um, making sure that you have a meaningful wage to where they they want to stay. The third is creating a culture of inclusion uh, to where they feel that you, you're you care about them. That's also fairly tough. Um, and then ultimately, there's the mission portion, right? People want to have meaningful work. They don't just want busy work. And fortunately for us in high end, it's fairly challenging, right? Moving an application to the cloud is challenging. Securing an environment from all the threats is challenging. So on that side, the missions that we serve and the type of work that we do is very mentally engaging. So that helps us attract talent. Um, but keeping people is always a challenge. And uh, at one point, I had six Edsons working in the company. Um, <laughs> there is, you know. Well, there's a whole bunch more than there's six. There's a whole I mean, bunch more. 14. But there can be Edson <laughs> fatigue, right? So um, <laughs> people can work with each other for a period of time, and then they usually want to do something else, or they no longer are challenged, sure. or they no longer can grow. And, and so they move on. So today there's fewer Edsons in the company than, than historically, 
But uh, that's the right. That is the most challenging. The people aspect. Um, I've enjoyed the 17-year history of being part of VARQ and leading VARQ, but having people along the way that, for better or worse, lasted five years or seven years or six months or one year, that always um, is something that I wonder about, right? How, how do you engage someone that lasts for a long, long period of time? Um, right. And that's tough. That's, that's been my biggest challenge as an entrepreneur. It's very well. difficult. What advice would you give a young entrepreneur who's starting their business? So um, focus on the things that you're good at. Uh, make sure that okay. the things that you're good at actually produce a meaningful wage. So from a productivity perspective, I think it's important to, um, if you want to build a family, if you want to have disposable income, if you want to have those things that, that help you get ahead, um, focus on mm -hmm. a career path that is not just based off of your passion, but that has a real need within the marketplace. So that's one. The second thing that I would that I would encourage is uh, think of learning as something that is eternal. <laughs> and the areas that you're um, not super comfortable, whether it's business or finance or HR or people, those try to um, complement yourself in those areas as well, because as an entrepreneur, you're going to need all of those aspects to be successful. Great advice. This is great advice. We've we've been talking with Ben Edson, who's CEO at VARQ, and we've learned how he built his business from scratch. We talked about the challenge of keeping good people. And then lastly, he gave us some really good advice for new entrepreneurs as well as old entrepreneurs who are trying to build their businesses. And we really, really are very grateful to you, Ben, for being on Blueprint for Wealth. No problem. Thank you, Wayne. Thanks for being a special guest on Blueprint for Wealth. And join us next time for another educational moment and another special guest. Have a great week. Thanks.